Today's swap a number is 30. That's the number of days required for each of a series of three individual cooling off periods according to the Railway Labor Act, under which our pilot group operates. Those periods come at the end of a very detailed process. So on today's show, we talked to SWAPA General Counsel Stella Delanya about some of the intricacies of the RLA and how they impact negotiations. Rumble's 1419, turn left, heading 180, runway 22 left, clear for takeoff. Heading 180, clear for takeoff, left, 1419. I'm Kurt Heidemann. And I'm Amy Robinson, and here's our interview with Stella. Stella, probably the obvious question for a lot of our pilots is, why does the Railway Labor Act apply to airlines, including Southwest? Well, that's a really good question, Kurt. So originally, the Railway Labor Act was enacted in 1926 for railroads, but it was expanded in 1936 to include airlines. And that makes sense because if you think about it, the single most important purpose of the RLA is to avoid the interruption of interstate commerce. So initially, we used to rely a lot on trains, but as airlines became a thing, it only made sense to expand and include airlines in there as well. For people who are unaware, explain why all of our negotiations are called Section 6 negotiations. Why is it called Section 6? It's called Section 6 because that is the section of the RLA that requires for the party to submit notices when the CBA becomes amendable. And so that brings up a point, the fact that the CBAs are amendable, that's different than normal contracts, which have an expiration date. So what does that mean if it becomes just amendable? So what that means is that the parties are required to continue interacting with each other under the terms of the old contract. So that's what is called status quo. So Section 6 imposes a duty of status quo on both the employee and the employer. So you said it imposes status quo on both parties, but how does that apply to the company versus labor? Looking at it from the top, looking down, every every party involved, employer and employee, has a duty to maintain their positions, meaning that neither side can change current practice under the prior agreement until all of the bargaining procedures have been exhausted. So that means that pilots must continue flying under the same terms and conditions, meaning we can't all of a sudden do things like start calling in sick um, in order to impose stress on, uh, on the company to make them um, negotiate faster. We have to continue operating under the same rules and conditions as we, we normally would. On the flip side, the company also has a duty to continue running the operation and treating the pilots under the rules of the past contract because that is still enforceable. So currently we're in Section 6, so that means the status quo is in effect. But are there actions that we can take or actions we can do under the RLA in the meantime? Sure. Things that are allowed are, I, I guess, on the um, looking at it from a bigger perspective, is any action that does not disrupt the current operation, such as information picketing, for example. That is a perfect example. We are absolutely allowed to avail ourselves to that because it is we are still maintaining our duty under status quo and we're not disrupting the operation. And we are simply just talking to higher management because we feel like we're not being heard during the negotiations process. 
in the RLA, the process is pretty involved, um, and there's a lot of steps involved in that. In fact, we've published the flow chart a couple of times, but can you just kind of briefly run us through what those steps are? Absolutely. So we've just covered the section six notice that is, that's step number one. After that, you go to direct bargaining, which is currently what we are doing. Um, and that Im- involves, you know, the parties just getting together and just seeing if we can get this done. Now, um, if we are able to reach a deal through that direct bargaining, well, you know, game over. We now have a new contract. But if we do not reach a deal, then we can signal to the NMB, which is the National Mediations Board, and let them know that we are ready for mediation. And really, that just means, look, we've been talking and we're, we're not getting anywhere. And and either side can do that. Is that is that not accurate? Yes, either side can, can do that. So if we enter into mediation, then the NMB assigns a mediator. And now it's it's kind of like direct bargaining, except we're now in front of the mediator. The mediator is going to be the one directing the sessions and uh, talking to the parties. So if the mediator is able to reach a deal, then again, game over. We now have a new CBA. Now, that process can go for a very long time because unfortunately, only the mediator can decide when we are done. Only the mediator can say, you know what, we've been doing this long enough and we're not making any movement. I'm going to release you from mediation. Only the mediator can say we have reached an impasse and that's it. Stella, a common misconception I think that's out there is the the role of the mediator and the fact that they serve to facilitate those negotiations, but they aren't sort of a judge. That's a different role. Is that correct? That's correct. The mediators that we have with the NMB are simply there to facilitate. They cannot make either side accept. They cannot make other side reject, which is why they are the only ones in the position to declare an impasse because they are the only ones who are seeing both sides and only they can make that judgment call. So, yeah, the mediator cannot make anybody do anything. So what happens after, let's say someone does get you know released due to an impasse, what's next step? So the next step is the if the NMB agrees, but again they would uh, they would have to because it's their mediator. The they do what is called a proffer of arbitration, and that does then move it up a notch into a more binding situation. So either party has the ability to either accept or reject, and because. Uh, it it does have a binding nature to it. The chances of either party accepting are usually slim to none because the parties still have an interest to see if they can get a contract that they both agree to, not a contract that someone imposed on them. So that's typically what happens next. So you said that either party, but I think just to clarify, it takes both parties to agree to the arbitration for it to move forward? Absolutely. So if one of the parties says no, no then it's then not it's, going forward. Okay. But that, that arbitration is binding, so that's why most people do not agree to it. Is that correct? Absolutely. Because then you're putting your fate in someone else's hands completely. Right. And throughout this whole process, as contentious as it may be, I think both parties still have an interest to make a contract that is theirs, not a contract that someone imposed on them. So let's assume that the parties, for those reasons, don't uh, accept the proffer of arbitration. Then what would happen? So that brings us into what is called the cooling off periods. Under the RLA, uh, the parties are required to three or more separate 
30-day cooling off periods. Two of them are decided by the president of the United States, and the parties pretty much are required to exhaust each 30-day period before they can resort to self-help. So like I mentioned earlier, after uh, the parties, if either one rejects the binding arbitration, that is the first 30-day cooling off period. And in that time, the I mean, the parties can still continue discussion. And if, and if they reach a deal, then that then again, game over. We now have a, a new CBA. But if they don't reach a deal, then we move on to the second 30-day cooling off period, which at that point, the president of the United States gets involved and he may uh, convene what is called the Presidential Emergency Board. And that takes us to the second 30-day cooling off period. And so basically the idea here, I think, it sounds like is that they're building pressure. You're adding external pressure. You're having these cooling off periods where the government is now getting more involved to to uh, continue that interstate commerce. Is that sort of the philosophy that's going on? Yes, that's that's exactly what's going on. Because after that 30-day period, which, you know, president may, may do different things like convene a commission to do a report uh, and make recommendations. Um, after that 30-day period, it's not over. You're not released to self-help either. Because if the president is not able to get it done, then the third uh 30-day cooling period might involve Congress, who may also issue another commission and, and see if they can, I don't, pressure is not the right word, uh, just try to help the parties see the importance of getting a deal. Well, I think there it's kind of that mutual thing, right? You're, you're in the public eye, so this is, you're probably making national news at that point. This is all going on while they're giving their uh, assistance internally to reach an agreement. So the motivation to reach a deal is kind of happening from all sides, I would think. Absolutely. So let's talk about the final step when you're released to self-help after that third 30-day cooling off period. What are things that could happen at that point on either side? So on either side, uh, we'll start with the company. The, the company could permanently replace workers, uh, make unilateral changes to work rules. Um, they can lock out uh, current employees. On the union side, the union can do the traditional strike, they can do intermittent strike, they can do partial strikes, but I wanna emphasize that that can only happen after the parties have been released to self-help. We talked about entering federal mediation. What, like you said, it can go on for a long time. Is there a, is there a determinate amount of time that, that the mediator can, you can be under federal me mediation? No, there's no, determinative time. It's literally at the mediator's speed and at the mediator's pace and at the mediator's judgment. When the mediator decides that neither party is moving and he's never going to get them to move, that is when he he or she will call it a day on that. So that could be anywhere from a few months to many years. Absolutely. We've recently had the NC as well as uh, Casey on the podcast discussing some of the things about mediation. So we've already covered these, but I know some of the other questions that we have uh, are sort of a little more nuts and bolts. Like in your experience, does it take a long time to get the mediator? And, and if we did get a mediator assigned, what's that process look like? Is there a, a delay in will we meet right away or how does that work? Meeting right away is... Uh, Unlikely because, I mean, it's not like we're the only clients. So typically it is a process. And like most processes, you're going to run into into time delays. Um, but typically once you 
once you proffer the notice of mitigation to the to the NMB, I think you can expect anywhere from six days to nine months before you are even assigned a mediator and you start the process. So, so we talked about sort of timing, but is are there any other limitations as far as media, getting mediators um, set up? You said you know could be anywhere up to nine months before you're even assigned one. Are there any other limitations currently for being assigned a mediator? In the uh, post-COVID world, I can only imagine that that's going to play a factor in this because everyone is slowly coming back and a lot of these uh, mediations are being offered to be done virtually, which, you know, these... you know, different styles for different people, but I think I tend to to believe that you get better results when you're in person. So we may face that as one of the delays. Um, and it's just strictly to just accommodate our needs. We think we can move faster when people are in the room versus virtual and having to deal with the technology challenges associated with that. So admittedly, there are some drawbacks to filing for mediation, but but there's also some pros to it, right? Why, in addition to potentially reaching a deal because they serve as a facilitator, really, why else do we need to file for mediation? Because it's part of the process. Uh, you, We can't move on to the next step until we have gone through mediation. So if we never go to mediation, we would just end up stuck in the back and forth that we are currently in right now. So let's talk a little bit about um, arbitration, because there, there are two different um, things. And I don't think it's, it's clear to all pilots. There are systems board of adjustments uh, arbitrations. And then there's the, what we talked about earlier, which is the pro-offered arbitration by the NNB. Explain the difference just a little bit. So the, the, the arbitration that we spoke of earlier is where the mediator in the process of negotiating the CBA has decided that they are not able to move the process and they proffer an offer of binding arbitration. That is completely different to the arbitration that we face in um, in the uh, under the RLA as a mechanism for resolving our grievances. So in our industry, unlike other industries, our arbitration is binding because the RLA makes it binding. In other industries, their arbitration can be appealed to federal court. In ours, we are stuck with whatever the arbitrator says, for better or for worse. So, Stella, we entered uh, negotiations six months early for contract 2020 uh, and then actually presented our proposal back in January of 2020. So, we're uh, two and a half years into it right now. So, how long can this whole process actually run? Is there an end date that we can hopefully count on? As frustrating as this answer may be, there is no end date. Um, the parties and their conduct can do, is the only thing that determines that. So frustratingly, it could go on for two more years um, or we could be done in six months. Um, there unfortunately is no hard date. So one thing that comes up often is that the RLA process is, um, is you know, long and cumbersome and et cetera. And so the question has often been asked internally, would it be better to be governed under a different process? So SWAPA's position about the RLA is that it unfairly tilts the field towards the employer. With that said, um, I don't know that the law would ever give us any avenues other than the RLA. So I don't know that it is up to us to decide whether or not we stay or we go by virtue of the fact that we are we are airline employees and we interact with an employer who is an airline. We are governed by the RLA. So even though our position 
understandably so, is that the RLA does tilt and at times feels like it definitely is favoring management with the uh, self-help impositions and all of that stuff. That is what the law requires. So we've talked a lot about the various provisions of the RLA in the process, but what's probably the big takeaway that our listeners should have? Uh, that you, What message do you want to send to them? I think my, my most important message would be that as frustrating as the whole process may be, we must maintain our status quo. The, the law, the, the courts that enforce that law will not take it kindly on us if we violate status quo. Our, our counterparts who have faced those fates have faced really, really bad results, and I would never want to see that upon us. So as frustrating as it is, we must maintain our status quo under the law. Thanks to Stella for taking the time to educate us on the RLA and walk us through the process it dictates to achieving a new CBA. For a more in-depth analysis on the history of the RLA and how it shapes our Section 6 and grievance processes, check out the five-part series of articles which began in the September 2018 reporting point that can be found on SWAPA.org. And remember, if you have any feedback for us at all, please drop us a line at com at SWAPA.org. We really do want to hear from you. Finally, today's bonus number is 1936. That's the year the RLA was amended to include airlines. While it is an antiquated law, as Stella mentioned earlier, it is what we are required to work under, for better or for worse. I'll fifteen twenty three Baltimore Tower, runway two three left, clear to land, wind three six zero at three. Three three left, clear to land, southwest fifteen twenty three.